Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Sandspatch Radio carved entirely from wood. Hey everyone, many apologies, but there's no movie maintenance this week. We've been crazy busy with a few other things, one being Gabe's new book, Boone Shepherd, which is actually launching next week. So if you're in Melbourne on Tuesday the 26th of April, the book launch is at the Readings Bookstore on Ligon Street in Carlton. So come on down, say hi, buy a book and have a few drinks. I'll be there emceeing the event, so I'm sure it'll go off without a hitch. That's 309 Ligon Street in Carlton, and the event starts at 6.30. So, in lieu of an episode, what we're going to do is give you a preview of the first two chapters of the audiobook as read by the ever-handsome Gabriel Bergmoser, which we will be releasing in part when that's all polished and sounding real good. Enjoy! Story of a Lifetime. Chapter 1. I always take the time to appreciate the rolling green fields and pretty woods of the English countryside, whether I'm viewing them from the seat of my motorbike, or as I found myself on the day this story begins, hanging one-handed from the side of a speeding train. But it is hard to appreciate nature when you're viewing it at an angle, with your eyes full of soot and the wind throwing you around like the world's strangest flag. Any farmer pausing in their work to watch the train go by might have thought that a young man in a waistcoat tie and reading glasses was not exactly dressed for engine maintenance, extreme travel, or whatever else they might imagine I was doing. But this was not out of the ordinary for me. Journalism was a dangerous profession, and I'd been in worse situations in even less appropriate attire. My job saw me travelling around on my motorbike and writing about the most interesting stories I could find, which involved some danger and a surprising amount of ridiculous outfits. Today, however, I was not on the job. Today I was after something personal. Gritting my teeth, I forced my body to move against the wind, swinging around so that my spare hand caught hold of the edge of the cab door. With a stronger grip, I pulled myself forwards and my boots found purchase on the metal floor. Arms straining with the effort, I fought against the wind and finally dragged myself back inside. That was not fun, I called over the roar of the engine. Sorry, friend. Avery Arbogast, a tall grey-haired Texan in a wide-brimmed hat and bushy moustache, kept his hands firmly on the throttle lever and didn't look at me. All I want is the book. My eyes were on the satchel over his shoulder. 
You can keep the gold you have stashed on here. Heroic, he said, but I'll be needing to hang on to it. Avery, please. I held out a hand. The book. He ignored me. It was all the answer I needed. Suit yourself, I said, and dove forwards. He'd not expected that. The collision shoved him away from the controls and almost out the door. Before he had a chance to figure out what had happened, I grabbed the brake lever and pulled it hard. With an ear-splitting screech, the wheels locked. But the train was going too fast to stop, and I was thrown against the wall as the cab tilted to the side. I glimpsed Avery's stunned face soaring past me as I scrambled for something to hold on to. Out the far door, I could see nothing but blue sky. I gave up trying to steady myself and wrapped my arms around my head. I slammed against the wall, and then everything stopped. For a moment, there was silence. Wincing, I pulled myself up. Realising as I did that the floor beneath my feet was actually the wall, the engine had flipped onto its side. My glasses were lying beside me, thankfully in one piece. I put them on and looked out the window to see torn up grass and clods of dirt among the twisted remains of the track. Further back, the carriages were bunched together along a sharp curve, still sitting upright. I was grateful for Avery's good sense to hijack a train with no passengers on board. I crawled out of the cab and collapsed onto the ground, trying to assess my aching body. I was alive, I'd stopped the train, and nothing felt broken. From the distance came the sound of sirens as the police Avery had been trying to outrun began to catch up. My movements stiff, I clambered back into the upended cab and knelt beside the Texan who was crumpled in the corner. He didn't move when I shook him, but his chest was rising and falling steadily, and all his limbs looked to be in the right place. I reached into his satchel and removed the battered book, tucking it under my jacket without looking. Thank you, friend. I hesitated a moment over his unconscious body. It seemed wrong to leave him, but the sirens were getting closer. Deciding to let the police sort him out, I crawled back outside. My motorbike was lying in the grass near the front carriage, miraculously no more damaged than I was. In the chaos, the grappling hook I'd used to attach it to the front car had come free, which was fine by me. It saved me more trouble than I was already in. I ran over, pulled it upright, and shoved the book deep inside a pannier. Climbing on, I looked back over the wreckage. Flashing lights were approaching. The police would soon arrive on the scene and Avery would have a lot of explaining to do. This was a conversation I was happy to not be present for. I started the engine and sped off into the distance. Once I'd found a nice place to camp, it took an hour of angry muttering and burnt fingers before I was finally warming my hands by a modest campfire. I sat in a wide open field under the starry night sky, my bike leaning against a nearby tree and the book in my lap. I stared into the flames, allowing my thoughts to go back over the day. I could have easily been killed in the crash, but I'd hardly batted an eye. I was quite certain that was not bravery. So what was it? I shivered. Something about where that train of thought led made me uneasy. I turned the book over in my hands, running a finger down the battered hard cover. It looked so innocuous. I never liked this part, but I'd never wanted this thing to exist. No matter how much I hated burning books, especially old books, it had to be done. There were only a few copies left now, and once they were all gone, I would finally be able to rest. I held the book out over the fire. I hesitated. Something was stopping me. This was not right. I pulled the book away from the reach of the flames and carefully opened it. I tried not to look at the photo on the front page. Words jumped out at me, words I did not want to see. Oscar. Marbia. Transylvania. Sherlock. I flicked through the pages. I knew full well what had happened. I had no interest in reliving it. But there was something wrong with this copy of the book that never should have been printed, and I needed to know what. Then I reached the last two chapters. But instead of looking down at some of the most horrible words ever written, I was looking at torn, ragged edges of paper. Frantic, I flicked through the pages again and shook them open. Nothing. The last two chapters were gone. I jumped to my feet and threw the book at the ground, breathing heavily. I wanted to scream. Who would rip them out? I stared at that little book, practically taunting me from where it lay. I could almost hear its whispering voice. You'll never get rid of me, Boone. I will always be here no matter how many books you burn and how far you ride. There is no escape. I kicked the book into the flames and watched as it caught a light, the pages curling and turning black as the fire ate them. I did not move until it was nothing but ash. 
Then I closed my eyes and tried to think. Avery. It had to be Avery. He had known he could use the book for leverage, but there was no telling if he'd read it or not. I didn't even know if he was literate. Whatever the case, he'd been smart enough to remove some of the most important and incriminating parts. Damn it, I muttered. I should have known not to underestimate him. He was American after all, but there was no point sitting here and brooding about it. This had to be dealt with him quickly. I hurried over to my bike, and after making sure my gear was attached, mounted and strapped my helmet on. I took one last look at the tiny fire and the remains of the book. The rest of you will be there soon, I promised. There was no time to waste. I turned the accelerator and with a roar of the engine we were off. My motorbike tore through the fields, carrying me into darkness, the fire receding behind me. I was seeing Avery's smirking face in my head. Had I underestimated him? He was a criminal, but as far as notorious bank robbers go, he was harmless enough. But if he had that part of the book, and if he knew what was in it, a coldness that had nothing to do with the wind was coming over me, growing from the churning fear in my stomach and filling me from head to foot. The night seemed darker. Even the stars appeared to have dimmed. Was this it? Was I finally done for? I arrived at the town of Green Meadow shortly before midnight. Thatched cottages lined the main street, their windows dark. One light flickered above the police station at the end of the main dirt road. I rolled my bike to a halt, dismounted and strode inside. The station was almost identical to every other little house in this town. The only difference was a flowery sign that, in lovely calligraphy, said police. The inside of the building matched this theme. There were paintings by the town's children on the walls, and the one police officer on duty sat behind the desk in a nightcap, stirring a cup of tea. He looked up in surprise as I entered. Oh, hello, he said. Can I help you? Avery Arbogast, I replied. I need to see him. Oh, well... The man looked confused. It could have been my Australian accent, which often threw people off. Or it could have been that late-night visits were not something the police officer of this tiny town had been trained for. Well, I'm not supposed to let him have any visitors. Please, I said. I promise I won't cause any trouble. The officer beamed. Well, in that case... He gestured to a door at the back of the room. He's through there. I thanked him and walked through. Even the cells were lined with nice, tasteful wallpaper. But the bars that separated me from Avery were as ugly as any prison. The cowboy was sprawled across a plush couch in his cell, inspecting his fingernails by the light of a single small lamp. He glanced up as I entered and smiled. Boon! Surprise, surprise! Avery, I said tersely. Great life for some, I see. I've been in worse cells. To what do I owe the pleasure? Just thought I'd check up on you. Make sure you're in one piece. Yes, that stands to reason. You are a very caring type, Boone. Always helping out those in need. I do my best. Cut to the chase, Avery said. What do you really want? My book, he laughed. You got your book. Spectacularly too, I might add. Who flips trains? I do, I said. Sometimes. When the mood takes me. The problem is, I only got most of my book. And I need all of it. Do you? Avery adopted an innocent expression. Well, I have no idea where the rest could be. I'm not a reader. I never knew what was on those pages. Help me out, Avery, I said. When you got the book, were the pages missing? Or did you take them out yourself? Help me out, Avery, he mocked. What would I help you out? My charm and good looks, I suggested weakly. Both of which you appear to have misplaced. Harsh, Avery. I took a hold of the bars. In that case, answer me this. You knew the book was important to me. How? Avery stepped up close, his smirk back in place. How could I not know? What, you think you've been subtle, Boone? Breaking into libraries and second-hand bookstores across England? Or that incident at Duchess Langston's lake house? And clever move claiming it was all a ghost. But what kind of ghost stops their haunting after stealing one particular old book? And then there was your spectacular work at Sultan Nazir's palace in the Middle East. Did you really think no one was taking notice? Sultan Nazir? That name didn't ring any bells. But Avery had a point. Fine, yes, it's important to me. If you knew that, why did you never read it? 
Avery shrugged. I don't really need to know what's in there, do I? And I don't really care. I just like the leverage. Whoever took those pages liked it more, I said. I need answers. Yeah, and I need the large amount of gold that was in that train. Whatever happened to that? Oh, that's right. You crashed it. I reached beneath my glasses and rubbed my eyes, trying to stay calm. What do you want from me? Bust me out of here, and I'll tell you where the missing pages are. I opened my eyes and stared at the smirking American. I can't do that, I said. Sure you can. He looked around the cell. It ain't exactly maximum security. I'm not breaking you out, I said. You're a criminal. Avery snorted. What? Because you're such a stickler for the law? It's simple, Shepard. Get me out and I'll get you the rest of your book. I tried to think. There had to be a way around this. For a moment, I wondered how easy it would be to get the keys off the solitary officer. Maybe I could cause a diversion? I was distracted by the sound of a throat clearing behind me. Sorry to interrupt you, the officer said as I turned, but there's a phone call for you, Mr. Shepard. For me? That made no sense. Nobody knew I was here. I'll be back, I told Avery. You think about my offer, he said as I followed the officer back into the office. He handed me the phone and confused I held it up to my ear. Hello? Oh, Boone, my boy! How are you? Lord Huxley, I said, instantly recognising the voice of my boss. How did you know where I was? I figured that sooner or later you would end up in a police station, Huxley said. Whether behind bars or in front of them, it was inevitable. Which is at this time? In front of, I said. Had a little run-in with Avery Arbogast. Oh yes, the charming cowboy, Huxley chortled. Say hello from me, would you? Sure. So, to what do I owe this pleasure? Well, I've been calling every police station in England looking for you, because I need you to be back in London by the morning. I glanced back towards the cell. Why? Don't question, Huxley said. Just jump on your little bike and be here by sunrise. I'm a little busy right now, Rasputin, I said. That's Lord Huxley to you, he snapped. And I don't care what you're up to. I promise that whatever you're doing can wait. This is of the utmost importance. I shook my head, despite knowing he couldn't see it. I'm sorry, I've got things to do. If you still want a job tomorrow, you'll do as I say. He hung up, and I was left clutching the phone, still searching for something. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Excuse. Very slowly, I placed it down on the receiver again. My hands clenched into fists. I looked back through the door to Avery's cell. I could hear him whistling from here. He wasn't going anywhere. Fine, I muttered to myself. I would do whatever Huxley needed and then come straight back here. How difficult could it really be? 
I'll be seeing you soon, Avery, I called out before nodding to the bemused-looking police officer and striding out the front door. As it swung shut behind me, I managed to catch Avery's parting words. I sure do hope so, Boone Shepherd, for both our sakes. Chapter 2 The sun was coming up as I rode into London the next day, shining in beams through the thick clouds that covered the grey city. Around me, grumpy-looking people made their way to work, while cars honked horns at each other in the street. Weaving through traffic, I ignored all the commotion as I approached the large, imposing-looking headquarters of the Chronicle newspaper. This was technically my place of work, but thankfully not somewhere I went very often. I noticed as I parked the bike that a large portion of the building had recently been repainted, probably something to do with a fire-related mishap I'd been involved in not long ago. The fact that the rest of the building was made out of unpainted stone did not seem to have occurred to whoever was behind the restoration job. I did not waste time as I walked through the marble entry hall with its framed front pages of old editions, nor did I acknowledge any of my colleagues who passed. I showed my identification at the front desk, then went through into the office area, full of bustling journalists trying to get their articles together for the next edition, and haughty photographers sitting around drinking coffee and looking smug. The buzz was enough to make me wince, as I ducked and weaved through the bustling, muttering, and in some cases outright yelling crowd, none of whom seemed to see me or pay me any mind. Which was fine. The last thing I needed was somebody trying to give me another job to do. I entered the elevator at the far end of the room and hit the button for the top floor. Alone in the compartment, I closed my eyes and took a breath. I felt tired, but that was not unusual. I never got enough sleep. But stronger than my fatigue was the feeling that I just could not be bothered with whatever useless task Huxley had cooked up for me. The elevator reached the top, and I stepped out into the wood-panelled luxurious waiting room to Huxley's office. The walls were covered in photos of Huxley posing with different celebrities. In each one, his vast girth seemed to take up the photo, almost edging the uncomfortable-looking notable person out of the frame altogether. Huxley, at least, looked happy to be there. I strode across the office, keeping my eyes on Huxley's door and ignoring his secretary's questions. Get in, get out, do the job, back to the book. I wasn't about to be held up. If the waiting room seemed like it belonged to a show-off, the office itself was even worse. Huxley had decided that his status warranted statues and expensive artworks, as if to remind anybody who was uncertain that he was very rich. Behind his large desk was a huge oil painting of himself, looking very noble as he stared into the distance. It was hard not to notice when comparing the figure in the painting to the man himself sitting directly in front, how much the artist had decided to slim him down. Lord Rasputin Huxley VIII was a large man in every sense of the word. Dressed in his expensive suit, he seemed to dominate the whole room. He looked up as I entered, and his broad face broke into a beaming smile. Boon! Good timing! Take a seat! Wanting to do anything but, I obeyed. How are you, my boy? he asked. Standard, I said. Overworked and underpaid. You have some cheek about you? he laughed. But it's all in good fun. I appreciate a joke as much as the next man. Why am I here, Lord Huxley? Don't be impatient now. He tapped his nose in a supremely irritating way. You're not the only one I need to see. Oh, lovely. I looked down at my watch. Did you also give this other person a time as specific as morning? Because I really have things to do. Learn to prioritize, Boone, Huxley said. This is more important. Important enough that it can wait. Despite you demanding that I drive all night to be here, I asked. Look, Rasputin, I think he prefers Lord Huxley a voice from behind me said, and that was a rather disrespectful tone, don't you think? I froze. Dreading what I was about to see, I turned in my seat. Sure enough, leaning in the doorway, arms crossed and with a horrible smirk on her face, was someone I had really hoped to never encounter again. Tall and slim with long blonde hair, dressed all in black with a large camera slung around her neck, Promethea Peters epitomised everything I hated about photographers. Hello, Shepard, she said, her smirk somehow becoming more awful. Peters, I replied through gritted teeth. To what do I owe the dubious pleasure? Your guess is as good as mine. She pulled up a seat and sat beside me. That's what the esteemed Lord Huxley's going to tell us, isn't it, sir? Sharp as a knife, this one, Huxley exclaimed. I believe you two know each other. 
I remember her trying to steal my story and get me locked up for trespassing, I nodded. Not to mention the havoc she wreaked on that film set in Los Angeles. That was you, she said. I chose to ignore that. Why is she here? Same reason as you, Huxley said. I have come across what I suspect could be the biggest story of the year. A scoop that no one else has their hands on yet. To do it justice, I need my best investigative journalist and my best investigative photographer. There's no such thing as an investigative photographer, I pointed out. There is now, Huxley said. Prometheus' discovery of that facility training manatees to perform circus tricks sold us almost as many newspapers as your story about the famous band murder conspiracy. Wait, what? I turned to Promethea, who was trying to look as wide-eyed and innocent as possible. The manatee training centre? The one I sent? It was a great story, if I do say so myself. She cut me off. I knew I was taking a risk tracking it down, but my gut feeling paid off in the end. She grinned. I'm just glad I could do right by my admired employer. You're admired! I looked from Huxley to Promethea, mouth hanging open in shock. But that... That's not what... Close your mouth, Boone, you look like a fish, Huxley said. Anyway, the point is that you have between you caused record newspaper sales in the last year. 1965 is shaping up to be a hugely successful milestone for this paper, he grinned. And we're about to make it even bigger. And how is that going to happen, I asked. Huxley opened his desk drawer and removed some papers. Two months ago, I sent one of our journalists, Couchman Frame, to investigate a missing person case in the Scottish Highlands. There was a local legend that every few years hikers would go missing in those parts, but nobody ever took it seriously. On a whim, and to stop Couchman from pushing an article about the fortune-telling abilities of his pet duck, I sent him to look into it. Now I want you to have a very close look at this. He withdrew a scroll from the papers, and with a conspiratorial wink began to unfurl it. Despite myself, I leaned in closer. Beside me, Promethea did the same. With a flourish, Huxley held it up in front of us. That's impressive, I said. A map? It was a localised map of Scotland, showing lakes, towns and the mountains themselves. Huxley pointed to one particular spot. This is in the highest, most inhospitable area, he said. A slight valley between two peaks. Now looking closely at it, what do you see? I narrowed my eyes. Nothing, I said, my impatience returning. What are we supposed to be looking for? Nothing indeed. Huxley sounded very pleased with his own theatrics. So there is nothing in those mountains. Just snow, wild animals and beautiful nature. A few missing persons cases can probably be put down to the Yeti or whatever mythical creature is said to live in those Scottish hills. Do you mean the Loch Ness? Quiet, Huxley said. I'm not finished. Now, being a man of great foresight and caution, I suspected there was more to these missing person cases than there first seemed. He leaned forward, eyes moving between Promethea and myself. Couchman Frame vanished after telling me he had seen something in the valley and was going to investigate. I never heard from him again, but yesterday I received this. He placed in front of us a single photograph. Promethea and I both shuffled closer to get a look. It was difficult to make out what it was. Snow seemed to have clouded the image, but I could almost see, in front of the shape of a mountain peak, a large black blur. What is it? Promethea asked. That's what you're going to find out for me, Huxley said. From what I can tell, it is a building of some sort, and quite big considering the scale of the mountains. The question is, how does something so big go by unnoticed in an area that is meant to be uninhabited? Probably by merit of the area being uninhabited, I suggested. Hang on, Promethea said. What is it you want us to do? It's simple, he said. I have chartered a helicopter for you both. You will be flown into Scotland this evening, and you will journey into the mountains, and you will find out whatever is up there. Whatever it is, you will bring me back a story. There was silence for a moment. Huxley sat back in his seat with a satisfied expression. Promethea and I looked at each other, and for the first time I felt like we were on the same page. I was willing to bet that her shocked, wide-eyed expression mirrored mine perfectly. Lord Huxley, I said, choosing my words carefully. Isn't this something that would be more suited to the police? The moment the police become involved, other newspapers do, Huxley said. This will be a chronicle exclusive. 
What makes you think that this is even worth investigating? Promethea asked. People vanishing always makes for good stories, Huxley said. Promethea sounded very uncertain. It, it seems very vague. Not to mention life-threatening. Nonsense! Huxley waved a hand dismissively. Promethea, you came into contact with some manatees, which are very dangerous and majestic animals. And Boone survived all sorts of near-death situations with that ghost at the lake house case. And that's to say nothing of how young you both are. You have a pair of very impressive resumes. I can't think of any two people better suited to this. I promise you will both be paid handsomely for it. If we're alive to get the check, I said. Rasputin, Lord Huxley! Uh, Lord Huxley, I, I really think that this is beyond us. For the first time, Huxley seemed speechless. Then I was taken aback by the sound of Promethea laughing. Beyond us, Shepard! Speak for yourself! I turned to her. You just said vague and life-threatening, yeah. Don't you think that just adds to the thrill? No! I think it adds the increasing likelihood that we'll end up dead. Are you scared, Shepard? Of course I... I stopped myself and cleared my throat. Of course I'm not scared, Peters. Really? She asked. Because you seem a little scared. Well, I was just putting that on to get you out of it, I said. Because you seem more scared. I'm not scared, Prometheus scoffed. Are you sure? Not even a little bit scared. I'm not scared. Stop saying scared, Huxley barked. Considering your courage isn't in question, I'll assume you're both happy to go. I am if Shepard is, Prometheus said quickly. Wouldn't miss it. I gave her a defiant look. A trip to Scotland sounds lovely to me. Then that's settled. Huxley's signature beam was back. Five o'clock at the airfield. You'll be dropped in the mountains, where my contact will brief you both on what is known about the situation and prepare you for the hike. From there, I will defer to your investigative skills. And I assume Miss Peters will have a purpose on this mission as well? I asked politely. I think he was referring to both of us, she said. Oh, of course, I grinned. I forgot that you found the manatee place all by yourself without any help or directions at all. Shame that, Prometheus said sweetly. Wouldn't it be a much funnier story if I was sent there by a conceited journalist who thought he was being clever, despite not having noticed the story potential himself? It would be, I nodded, especially if the journalist in question was genuinely surprised by the low reading standards of the British public. Prometheus opened her mouth to deliver what I assume was meant to be an incredibly witty and devastating retort, but was cut off by a now very irate Huxley. Both of you shut up, he demanded. I expect you to be upstanding representatives of the Chronicle to the fine people of Scotland. He pointed to me, then Promethea. You will both uphold the standards of our paper at all times, understood? Well, in that case, you'd best just send Promethea, I said. Yeah, let me do it, she said. He's just going to get scared. Enough! Both of you get out of my sight. But you'd better be there on time tonight. I want results as soon as possible. If I didn't trust both of you, I would not be sending you. Now get to work and bring me back a damn fine story, understand? Mumbling agreement, we both got to our feet and left the fuming Huxley behind. Promethea walked ahead of me and I pulled the door shut. Well, partner, Promethea said, I'll be seeing you this evening. I'm not your partner, I growled. And you know as well as I do that this whole mission is a waste of time. There's probably nothing up there but wild animals and angry Scots. Probably, Promethea shrugged. We don't have any choice, do we? I shook my head, feeling suddenly very hopeless. A wild goose chase in the Scottish mountains with only Promethea Peters for company. I thought about Avery Arbogast in that cell, waiting for me to come back. I thought about those pages of the book. Somewhere in the clutches of somebody who doubtless had bad intentions. For just a second, I considered forgetting the story, getting on my bike, and riding off to solve my own problems, rather than deal with Huxley's whims. But this was my job. And if I wanted to keep my life the way it was, I had to do it. Prometheus was right. I didn't have any choice. But that did not make this easier.
Thanks for listening to the first two chapters of Boone Shepherd. If you're interested in pre-ordering the book, just head to belfrogbooks.com slash boonshepherd, and hopefully in the next few weeks we'll be launching the audiobook in its completion. Have a good one, and we'll be seeing some of your handsome faces on Tuesday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.